This is episode 19 of Functional First Podcast, where we speak with leading experts in the field of functional health. I'm Katie Yamamoto from Functional Media, and in today's episode, physiotherapist Daryl Yardley answers business questions from students and new grads. This is part four of a special business series for health professionals and business owners in partnership with the Canadian Physiotherapy Association's Private Practice Division. Welcome, Daryl. Can we start by having you introduce yourself sure. and your background? Okay. So I'm Daryl Yardley. Uh, I'm actually a physio by trade. I graduated in 2006 from U of T. And since that, my journey's probably been quite quite all over the place, if you will. So I started as a clinician. I completed my fellowship in manipulative therapy within the first uh, three years of practice. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to the Western program and did my master's in clinical science. And then from there, that's actually where things kind of shifted a little bit. So I went from just being a full-time clinician to actually teaching back at the university. So over the years, I, as I became the chair of the private practice division for the CPA, I started to get quite involved with teaching sort of the business and practice management at U of T. That kind of transferred over into uh, me being actually the professor at Western right now of, of teaching the business and entrepreneurship in, in physical therapy course. So I have a, a real passion at this point, I would say, for helping our you know our students and our and our future sort of generation of PTs um, really start to prosper as we enter the workforce. I believe that right now our our current generation of physios is sort of the the next leaders in our profession without a doubt. But a lot of the where I have my passion sort of exists right now is what is the appropriate mentorship that that our, our students need in order to be successful as practitioners and how do we keep them into a really positive start to their career as opposed to trying to avoid where some individuals have gotten into trouble. So I've sort of been able to make my way into doing a lot more teaching around that new graduate perspective. And at that same point in time, though, I still actually take students in my clinical practice. So I do spend some time with clinic owners, but that seems to have shifted now more to students and new graduates. But I still do have a clinical practice myself. So I still do consulting with, uh, I do some consulting with a neurosurgeon and an orthopedic surgeon. And my sole focus right now is on spine and and hip arthroscopy. So I still do have a small clinical practice that I still keep. and, And I still actually teach from there as well. Okay. And today we are looking at some student and new grad questions. So we've collected questions from physiotherapy schools across Canada and just getting your answers to those. Sure. Okay. So the first one is, what is the best way to build a caseload when first starting out? Uh, okay. So there's kind of two ways to answer that question, right? So the, que- the first question I would have for you as a, as a student or as a new grad starting out is, are you expected to build your caseload on your own? So do you have to find your referrals? or those referrals already coming through. And that next piece of that is how do you keep those patients coming back? So maybe if we go to the first one where you're actually starting out and your employer expects you to find your own patients, so which means that you need to actually do the lead generation. How those, those kind of pieces go is, I often would say to people is you should partner with your clinic owner and figure out strategies that you guys could do to target very specific areas. So if you're in private practice and orthopedics, you want to come up with strategies that will obviously target individuals in your community uh, that have musculoskeletal problems. So that often entails doing some community involvement. The other option, though, is working with your owner and actually looking at who your referral sources are. So if your referral sources are physicians, and that's a high source, which we know from all the research and the data that we know from clinics, um, you want to spend some time visiting those physicians. What the challenge I think though happens for students is 
I don't even know how to get to the physician. I don't know who they are and how do I get past their administrator. But the one thing that I would say is that probably one of the oldest but best used marketing engines that you ever would have, especially as a new grad, is, is learning after an assessment to send an initial assessment report to a physician to make yourself known. Um, when that patient is done with you, complete a discharge note. So you're actually, that physician is seeing multiple times your name coming across their desk and outcomes from that particular patient. So that would be sort of that piece, you know, if you're trying to drive your own leads. And I think the other thing that, that I believe are the younger population or the millennials, if you will. So physios from students and new grads, you guys have the huge power of social media that me, myself, we didn't actually utilize when I was graduating. So there's a huge opportunity where you can build a lot of value to a, to a niche community, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, you guys have that capacity to understand that world really well. And that could actually be another opportunity for you guys to drive leads in order to build a caseload. Now, if we go to the next opportunity where that, that owner is providing you all their assessments, one of the things that I would say is it's so important for you guys to actually learn how to maintain that caseload. And that really starts with what we would teach in school and as we go through some of our post-grad mentorship is, is about the patient experience. So what are those checkpoints so you know whether your patient's staying engaged, whether you know your patient's actually satisfied with the care plan, and how do we get them from the beginning of their assessment all the way to the end of their treatment plan. So really looking at completing their care plan. And I would say if that's sort of the position that you sit in, that's by far the best one for a new grad student to work on initially because that's when you're really focusing on maintaining your caseload. And that's typically when you get to that end. Now you circle back to both options and you have your patients now sending their friends and family, there's your word of mouth, and that's how that would build. So those are sort of those two potential options that you would have to build your caseload. Okay. Do you have any suggestions on how new grads can market themselves when they don't have much experience? Mm. Um, so how to sort of market yourself? So there's always a big question as well, and, and, and some clinic owners have had this debate for a long time, is do we want the clinic to be branded and so the community understands who we are as a clinic and that there's all these great therapists within it? Or do we want to have physiotherapists branding themselves and they're branding themselves within this facility? So. <clears throat> Excuse me. So those are good conversation pieces to be had, obviously, with your clinic owner at any point in time, because depending on who your clinic owner is and, and what their marketing strategies are, it may work very, very well for you to actually start that your own little branding exercise, if you will, and then actually working and building that brand on a regular basis and getting your name out there in the community. As far as, you know, what's the best strategies to market yourself? And I think where you guys come and in, in, in where you come with great expertise is in the social media industry. But by far, I'm not the marketing expert there by any means. And what I would often do is is sort of steer you guys in the direction of where some of those experts lie. And I know there's actually some really good videos and podcasts already on functional media that you guys would definitely be able to have good access from, from individuals who have actually mastered it themselves and been able to help many, many physios in the private sector be able to market themselves and actually build a brand. And I think it's something that's a little bit different for, for you guys outside of that typical realm of physio. And I think when we really look at ourselves as, as direct access autonomous professionals, I actually think it's a huge opportunity for a young, younger physio to really start to make a difference in primary care, for example, or in your clinic. And it actually opens up a massive opportunity for some clinic owners who really, quite frankly, either aren't interested in or just don't have the expertise in sort of that social media world. But it's a great opportunity for you guys to leverage your your what we would consider your youth and your expertise in that world. And 
think one of the biggest questions that was asked is, what is the difference between an independent contractor and an employee? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's, we'll try to make this one as simple as possible. And, it, and it's actually an analogy that I didn't like when I first heard it, um, but it actually makes sense. Um, so when I was in the U.S. for a conference, I was there representing Canada at the private practice section in, in the U.S. And they actually think that Canadians are all independent contractors. And what they sort of think physio is in Canada is like actually being a hairdresser. So basically, as an independent contractor, you would go in and you would actually rent a chair. You would have all your own equipment and you would actually, every patient that would walk through your door, you would actually, all transactional services would go to you directly. So you would show up, that chair is now yours, that's your rented space, patients come, patients go. And then each month you would actually have a fee. So it's probably one of the easiest ways to look at it from an analogy perspective of what that looks like. However, the problem is, is where things get confusing is that people would always assume that if you were paid on a fee split, so the clinic owner gets a percentage and you get a percentage, they feel that that's sort of the independent contractor side of things, but that's actually not the case. So an independent contractor could be on a fee split, but so can employee be on a fee split as well. So employee doesn't necessarily mean that it means you get an hourly rate or a salary. So from that perspective, Things that you have to think about from an independent contractor, if you are going in and that's your rented space, obviously you have to show a transaction back to the clinic owner that you are renting that space. But one of the, some of the key pieces are is that your how you get paid is a gross pay. So you still owe taxes and you still have to do your CPP. So there's, a, there's some, certainly some advantages, but at the end of the year, you guys have to make sure that you've actually figured out how much taxes you would actually have to pay back to the government you know, where's your CPP, your, all, so your pension and things like that. However, at the same point, though, you're considered running your own business. And at that point in time, you also have to consider that you get multiple opportunities to do write-offs. So things that are affiliated with your business, whether they're meetings, meals, um, equipment, you get to write that off. So what I always say to individuals that are as an independent contractor, and if that's the contract that you get to you, that's when you need to sit down with your accountant, right, to make sure that that sort of bookkeeping process is underway. I know many physios that will do that all on their own, but you definitely need to make sure that you have good conversations and support with an accountant to do that, okay? The other thing though to consider though is you also, as an independent contractor, CRA will not approve continuing education from your employer and things like that. So that's where you have to actually bring that in because again, that's part of your business. And typically too, from an extended health perspective, so if you're looking for extended health benefits, that also would fall under you as that independent business. Now, from an employee perspective, that's where the employer will actually assume a percentage already of what they would be sending, they covering from the government on your behalf. So taxes are already taken off your, your pay, um, your CPP comes off your pay, your EI comes off your pay. But the other thing, though, is as part of an employee into that business, they're intended to actually provide you with all the tools you need to make. So they provide you your beds, they provide your equipment, they provide your acupuncture needles and your tape. So those are sort of where it's a little, bit, a little bit more of a supportive environment. But oftentimes what the students would also be looking for in your grads is quite often and most of the time in order for people to be attractive to a new grad, they often offer you continuing education. The big question is always around is there extended health benefits involved? So that's sort of that world there. One of the things though, that I would say is we just finished writing uh, an ebook that we'll, we'll be able to give you guys access to that will actually break down an independent contractor from employee in much more detail. And even just looking at the difference between, well, what happens if I'm paid hourly versus if I'm paid on a fee split? 
and what are my sort of what are the do's and don'ts when it comes to a Canada Revenue Agency perspective, and when should I consult my accountant? And as an independent contractor, when should you incorporate? So this is one of the hardest questions to do. I didn't do my incorporation until about 10 years into my practice. And depending on who you talk to, one of the things that I did when I sat down with my accountant was it sort of depended on, on the current financial situation that I was in for my practice and what were my future goals in my practice. Did I plan on opening multiple clinics? Was I going to go into a consulting business or was I going to stay as just working as a physio? So the best sort of advice that I have from that, especially not having the accounting background and knowing sort of some of the changes with CRA coming that have happened in the last year or two, one of the things that I always say is that's sort of a good conversation. My best advice that I would give to any physio is to sit down with their accountant or sit down with a couple of accountants actually and get multiple opinions on that um, and make sure that they can really do what I would consider as a full assessment, things that we're used to doing and helping you lay out your options and, and you guys would then determine financially um, whether that makes the most sense for you in your in your current situation. And the other piece to that too is oftentimes it's not a bad idea to bring in a financial advisor also to figure out and help you guys with your with your kind of financial plan out given that most students now are coming out of school with at least forty to fifty thousand dollars of debt. And how do you actually start to pay that off? And being, for example, taking yourself as an independent contractor to a corporation, is that advantageous for you? Along those same lines of billing, mm -hmm. how do you make sure that your billing number is being used appropriately? Hmm. All right. So uh, one of the things that I would say, and it sort of starts with before you even get into that situation, how do you protect that? And one of the pieces of advice I would give to every student that I have or any physio that I talk to is, is even if let's say you came into my clinic and you wanted to work for me, I wouldn't even let you sign on the dotted line until you actually did an observational shift. You need to go and actually see the clinic and that's actually your first opportunity to get an idea of what's that environment going to be like. So when you actually get through that door, I actually don't want you to watch them treat and all that. I actually want you to kind of scan the environment. So if you went back to like when you guys were studying for your national exam and we taught you how to like scan the environment before you actually started asking the questions on the PCE, it's the exact same situation. It's what you guys actually know best and you'll actually figure out if you get some of those odd feelings when you're doing that you know, that hour to two hours. But when you're doing that, you need to actually spend some time with the administrative side of the clinic as well, not just with the physio. And that's when you actually would ask that administrator or the physio for that matter, how do you how do you know the billings are done accurately and who bills for me? Am I responsible to bill for myself or is there an administrative role that someone fulfills for you? And then if that's the case, and let's say you're paid on as a on a fee split, at the end of the month, you would actually have to reconcile that anyway because you would be you would be owing the clinic owner a percentage or the clinic owner would owe you a percentage. Where it's a little bit more challenging is um, when you're an employee because you're not necessarily doing all the billing because many clinics now will do direct billing, which means the clinic will bill the insurance company directly for the, for the patient, which reduces some of the strain on them financially. So what you would need to do is ask the billing manager or the administrator if you, you know, how is it that I would be able to check my billings for that month? And they should be able to take you through a practice management software that would allow you to actually do, print out basically a, a, a cash payment sheet or a reconciliation report so you can confirm that on your own. If someone's not willing to do that for you, that's my first sign that there's something not right. 100%, that whole billing process should be transparent. And the other thing even for you guys is if you're not the ones that are actually doing the billing and you don't have the 
Um, it's not really your accountability, let's say. From a college perspective, it's always your accountability. And what you want to be able to do is always figure out what is the policy if someone is billing on your behalf and who does it. And you need to inquire what's their training and you need to have your checks and balances in place. So you guys would then request at least um, every month, I need to see who's been billed and how has it been billed under my billing number. And you guys also, oftentimes the physios don't want to learn much about the practice management software, so the billing and the scheduling program, but I usually sort of contradict that by saying it's very important for you to know how to do that. So you could also do sort of, you know, any audit that you want at any given time. Our billing numbers are public, so Mm -hmm. how do you know if someone else is using it or if there uh, has been something else going on. Yeah, so if, let's say for example, like if someone was just to look you up from the college and use mm-hmm. your billing number. So typically that's a lot harder than you think, right? For someone to go on and just start utilizing it. Typically what will happen is that if an insurance company starts to see your name and your number going in multiple times and coming from different cities and provinces and things like that, it obviously raises a flag. But there's some of that stuff is actually truly hard to know that's why it's so important that you guys are always wherever you are practicing is to to monitor but what happens to the insurance company is also doing a double check so very often you will actually see a patient get audited and what they have to do is complete a survey and then there will also be an audit to that particular clinic if they can't support the required uh, questions being answered and the appropriate documentation that's how you would actually see fraudulent activity I very rarely see that. Where I think the biggest concern for you guys are as as new grads is if you were to leave a clinic and you go to a new site, your number's still in their practice management software system and it always will be, right? Because you actually need to maintain those records for those patients. So oftentimes what needs to happen, and we've identified it when we are doing in Ontario, some of the audits for the motor vehicle insurer and part of what what basically regulates it in, in Ontario is called FISCO. And we actually had to prove that, show us at any given time whose billing number was used. And we were able to cross-reference that that physio no longer worked with the company and there was no billing that would actually happen under their name. So what is often important for you guys too is to do a follow-up with a, a previous clinic owner to ensure that your number is not being used. You need to make sure you document it and you actually need to update the college as well to let them know that you're no longer there. The one piece, though, that I would support for you or suggest for you guys as well is even the clinics that are the most legit clinics that you could see, they still make errors at times. And the main thing is, is just trying to make sure that you always leave on good terms so you actually have the opportunity to communicate with that employer to ensure that your number is not being used. It's always deemed that it's used illegally, but ultimately or fraudulently, but some people it's just a mistake because things are automated in the practice management software. So always doing your due diligence when you go to leave. For physios starting out, is it better to learn through experience or to take a lot of courses in the beginning? Mm. All right. So here's my story. So I took 11 courses in my first year of practice. And I'm not going to say that continuing education is not a good thing by any means. Uh, you know, lots of my success was based on a lot of my continuing education and my postgrad training. But I think what it is, is I actually found I started taking a lot of courses because I didn't actually know what I didn't know. And there's a lot of times where I didn't trust the expertise or the training that I had from school and it just seemed that every patient that came through the door was just was a puzzle but the reality is is that you guys actually know a lot more than you give yourselves credit for and your clinical reasoning capacity is a lot higher than you think as well 
So one of the things that I often would suggest that um, we do actually with, with when I do a lot of mentorship with some of my students, some of my new grads, we spend a lot of time looking at a continuation blueprint, if you will, it's sort of what we've started to call it. So when I graduated, I went into practice. I had I had a mentor on site, but as we started working together, there was less and less time for that mentorship because he was actually building more and more clinics, which was which was a goal for him, and I was happy to be on my own, which was great. Um, but the challenge though is that made it a little bit harder from a mentorship perspective. So what I did is I just assumed that oh I couldn't figure out this patient, so let me take a new course. But it, each time what happened is is that it actually diluted some of that information in my opinion. So I had these all this great knowledge, but I wasn't really sure how to apply it. And I also didn't really figure out too much, you know, what are the types of patients coming through my clinic? What is the sort of the niche market that I see as a private practitioner? So oftentimes now what I often suggest is that much of where you potentially lack from an expertise perspective is more in just the caseload management side of things. What I feel we get a lot of great work on in, in school is on the actual technical side of being a physio and the clinical reasoning size of, side of things. So we often learn lots of systematic ways of doing things, but no patient follows the textbook. And you guys would see that from your placements. But it's also what makes it really interesting to be a physio is trying to figure out, you know, what is wrong with the patient? How do we give build them the most appropriate treatment plan? So what we what we really feel though is missing is is that teaching you guys some of that business acumen. And once we teach us some of the business acumen side of things of managing your caseload and managing some of the complexities of patient care, then we would actually help you build a blueprint to know, okay, here's an area where maybe you you want to take some extra courses, but you're actually excelling here. So why don't you put your focus over here? And then the other question comes to from an experience piece what you want to actually pull from you know, your mentor or whoever you're working with in your facility is draw on their experiences. What mistakes did you make? What courses helped you out? Where did you feel you gained some success? And the other piece that I think we oftentimes overlook is just the power of sometimes of looking outside of our industry. We don't always have to take something that sits within the physio world at times, even as a new grad. Sometimes there's a lot of really interesting ways for you guys to build some more competency to actually excel in your, in your current practice setting. The, the only other thing, though, that I would say is a lot of times physios will use continuing education to build their confidence. And I felt that actually when I look back at how I took 11 courses in my first year of practice, that tended to build my confidence. But I still, in my opinion, when I look back, I was still quite competent as a physio. So I think it's whatever helps you guys build your confidence and years of experience without a doubt will only make you better. The question I have in there is, is I would rather see you guys take a take a step back and actually build a blueprint. Where do you want to see yourself in at the end of your first year of practice? So the question I would actually want you guys to think about before you even started thinking about a course is, is sort of if you had a crystal ball in front of you and you look back onto your first year, what would you say your a successful first year of practice would look like for you? And that's how you start to build the first part of your blueprint. And then the second piece we would look at is to say, okay, where do you want to be in three to five years? And we would want to help you do that. So if you wanted to sort of focus and build a niche, let's say in pelvic health, for example, you want to start to build your con ed map or blueprint, if you will, out on how do I get there? And what happens if you take a little detour on the way? Maybe you want to do your acupuncture as well, because that's a need that you see for your patient population. I would spend a lot of time sort of helping you guys dig that through and be able to map something out. Plus, it also creates a really great opportunity for you to actually start to see those, those accomplishments along the way. And I'm sure we'll talk about this shortly, but this is going to actually help you set the stage for when you want to start to do your performance reviews with your employer. So that continuing education piece is a really great stepping stone to get you prepared for a performance appraisal.
Do you have any tips for physios starting at a clinic where there's already established PTAs? Mm-hmm. That's actually probably the most challenging piece you're going to get coming out of school. So you're, you may walk into a situation where you have a, a, let's say we have an assistant that has 10 years of experience and you quite frankly have like a month and you're now delegating or assigning tasks to them. And the question is, is do they follow your plan or do they, they not follow your plan? So we'll take it like where it's a, where it's going to be a fairly comfortable situation. And let's say they just follow tasks, but it's a little bit intimidating for many new grads. One of the best strategies, though, that you can do is spend a lot of time working with that therapist um, or that assistant. So getting a chance to understand them, know them, you know, always kind of bring them in, ask them for their input, ask them for feedback, uh, you know, really sit down and get to know that person. I think oftentimes we go in and we just assume sort of this delegation or this task shifting role and we don't really get a chance to understand that person. And if I had been somewhere for 10 years and I was being told differently, it's a little bit hard for them as well to see that physios can at times be very different. I think the one piece though that you guys will always have to consider though from a college perspective, whether that assistant has been there for 10 years or 10 minutes, you guys actually have to deem them competent. So you actually have to work with them regardless because anytime that you're gonna assign a task, you have to ensure that that person you're assigning tasks to is competent and it obviously is within their scope of practice to do. You can't assign tasks that you don't do for that for all intents and purposes. So you have to be very mindful of that. But I would say the best thing to do if I was coming out as a new grad, going back to probably some of the errors that I made as well as, as a younger graduate, I would actually spend time, at, I would probably go for lunch with that person. I would have coffee with that individual. I want to know, you know, what strategies do you think work best with patients? Tell me about your successes. Tell me about your challenges and really get a chance to know that individual because I've seen many, many skilled assistants that would actually help improve the actual compliance of a patient. They'll help you build engagement of the patient. They really can support you. But I believe you want to spend a lot of time or invest a lot of time up front to really build a partnership. Okay. And for those working in publicly funded settings, how do you maintain quality care given constraints such as OHIP and limited sessions? Hmm. So you want to, so if we talk about it from the OHIP model, Sure. You want? sure. Okay. So when you look at that across the country, so most public funding that occurs in the private clinic, it's limited by a small fee per session. It's limited by what we would consider a bundled care model. So in Ontario, for example, where I'm most familiar, um, we used to be a transactional service. You used to get $12.20 anytime you would see a patient. So if you guys can imagine, depending on what your fees would be in a private setting, that's actually quite complex. You know, it's quite difficult to to drive high quality care, and it often what it would create is it required the need for different practice models. So there, that's sort of where you would have a physio and an assistant model really working collaboratively to make that work. Um, in some cases, though, where we've now seen a shift where there's a bundled care model, so saying that a patient now comes in with a particular pathology. Um, or you know a referral from their physician, it's now considered an episode of care, and you have three hundred and twelve dollars to treat that patient. And the thing that I find is very interesting, and and we've done a lot of work actually with the Ontario Physio Association and the college at the same time, working with the ministry. And there's a lot of resources that we had to build that could actually offer new grads a lot of support. 
And I would guess I would gather that happens across all provinces and territories. So you would have access to those uh, resources. But the one thing is, is that it's a, it's a little bit of a shift of mindset. So what used to just be you have an injury, we treat you X number of times and you're done. What we've now gone to is a goal oriented and time sensitive plan. So if a patient walks through the door that's over the age of 65, we now know that they're also dealing with someone that has multiple morbidity. So it's not likely that we're going from you were you know in a particular functional status today and now you're back to 100% tomorrow. We're really trying to build um, a, much, a lot more capacity along the continuum. So it's actually a little bit of a mind shift in a different way of, of treating because most people think, what do I do if I only have eight visits with Mrs. Smith and then she's got to go? Well, that's different actually. So we have to determine what Mrs. Smith's goal is and what's the timeline it's going to take to do that. And then Mrs. Smith will actually, she should be continuing in some sort of community-based service, whether it's a falls prevention class, whether it's an exercise class, or she just participates in the YMCA, you know, in a swimming aquafit program. So I think it's a little bit of a mind shift difference. So, and it's not something that we actually speak about in school often outside of case studies, because in the past, it's always been, well, if you have money, then you go here. And if the, if the government pays for it, well, you get a little bit and then you're on your own. So when we see this quite often, especially when I'm doing consulting with the neurosurgeon, is, is most people actually don't even know that they have access to many, many free services, or they actually have access to services that are funded for them, but they don't have to pay for. Um, so I think it's a difference where what you guys would want to do is, is actually seek some guidance, as opposed to just assuming what everybody else has always said is that, well, you don't get good care if you're in a publicly funded system, because it's actually far from the truth. It's it's learning actually how do you work within that that funding model. Okay, uh, let's shift to the hospital setting for a bit. This question is: It seems like every hospital job seems to want at least one to two years of experience in the field. Seeing as new grads have limited experience through placements, how can they possibly demonstrate that they have the skills and experience to be employable? Good question. So I'm actually maybe I left that in the beginning too. So I'm currently on contract at. Uh, Brantford Community Health System. I was brought in to actually look at the operations for all of therapy services. So what I oversee right now is physio, OT, all the assistants, speech language pathologists, and the dietitians. And it's very, very interesting because since I've started hiring, that used to be on our job ad is that you needed one to two years of experience. So I obviously wiped it out because I don't believe that's necessary. But we'll, we'll stick to the full question. So when I hire, I don't look at that. I look strictly at culture, um, I want it to be a fit within within the actual team of I oversee 55 people, our therapists, and I want that to be the right fit. But what do you do in the cases that that does exist? And I think this is where it comes down to your cover letter. You've got to get to the recruiter first, right? So the recruiter will screen before all those resumes come to me. So one of the things that you want to do is you have to somehow entice that recruiter to look past the fact that you don't have one to two years of experience. So you need to actually come to terms. What I do not want you guys to do is to not apply because that's there. What we need to do is to figure out, okay, if you're going to apply, let's say, to a neuro, an inpatient neurological program, so you wanted to work with inpatient stroke, but it said that it requires two years of experience and a bunch of uh, MDT courses. One of the things that you're going to want to do is build into that, and again, this comes back to your previous question of looking at well, what do you do with continuing education. This is why building a blueprint is so important. Because now what you're going to actually say is you're going to acknowledge the fact that you realize that you're a new grad, but you're going to talk to them about what motivates you and how you're motivated to actually meet those requirements. So I am actually registered for the following courses. 
I believe that I'm going to be able to seek some external mentorship and guidance, and I'm going to, you know, I'm willing to look for other resources. What basically make up for some of my lack of experience, I'm willing to stay a little bit late to work with other staff members. I want to spend time with the neurologist on site. So you can really build up a really good story that's 100% legit that will allow someone to look past and catch their attention in that resume because they're going to go through the cover letter in order to get you to bypass that lack of two years of experience. The other piece that you guys always have to think about is, you know, that individual who would even be recruiting you may not even be anyone from a health discipline. So they may not even be a physio, it could be a nurse. So again, you're going to have to really paint that really good story that's going to support you to make me want to hire you, knowing that you're fully motivated to become a key member on that neurological unit. You just spoke about external mentorship. Mm-hmm. So if a hospital or a clinic does not offer mentorship, how do you suggest that new grads seek out that mm-hmm. external mentorship on their own? Yeah, I think there's lots of opportunities for that. You know, one of the things that I've seen over the years is most mentorship has always been focused on clinical. And I think there's there's never a reason to replace that. Um, I think what I always will often suggest, especially with teaching, is is that's a given for me. I'm assuming that every physio that I'm going to hire especially as a lifelong learner, is going to want some sort of clinical development. And that can be done in multiple ways. So I always sort of overlook that. What I want to see is that I want that ability for that student or that new graduate to look beyond clinical development only. So I've sort of always coined it from some work that was recently done out of Queens um, and with the College of Physio. So Kathleen Norman sort of did an environmental scan of, you know, where is physio going to go into the future? And one of the pieces that she had identified is the business acumen side and how we're going to need to increase that in order to continue to grow as a profession and continue to you know withhold our, our, our worth and value in the marketplace. And that's one of the pieces that I've always sort of been fortunate enough to have mentorship in myself. And that's sort of that opportunity to where you can really look externally and how, you know, where do you do that? So it's either still staying in contact with past clinical instructors or preceptors you had, staying in contact with some of your faculty. You know, where I think I was very fortunate is that I had a lot of encouragement to go and start to do some volunteer work with the London Orthopedic Unit, which then became the private practice division. So in there, I started to build a huge network. And I think one of the things that we underestimate is we do so well communicating with patients, we actually forget that we're probably just as strong communicators in, in a large group setting. And I always would encourage you know young grads to go to conferences, whether it's something to do with the physio association, whether it's provincially or nationally, and you would actually expand your network quite significantly. And that's how you can start to build that external mentoring opportunity. And thing too that I've started to look at is, is trying to create opportunities knowing that the way that we need to mentor or we need to educate is different. It doesn't always have to be in person. It can be online. So we're looking even now at building a different sort of structure around, can we build an actual online platform of engagement that way? So distance education, if you know, if you're looking across the country and actually teaching the business acumen side, you know, can we teach you how to build a caseload while you're currently already have a mentor in your practice, but you have an opportunity to continue to expand your knowledge base and look at strategies that maybe have a practice management component to actually help you build on that experience level when you only have one year of experience, let's say. There's an opportunity coming for you guys to look at, you know, do you seek it out from networking and finding an in-person individual who you guys can do one-on-one mentorship as a formal style? Can you do it informally with phone calls? 
or can you actually look at resources that maybe have a curriculum that's actually built online? So probably it should launch in the early new year where actually I've built a, a platform called Mentorship Bootcamp that is going to actually offer that type of component to students, new grads, and new experienced physios where we can actually look at the true components of private practice and how do we get you to become more successful and how do we put you into what I would consider from a physio's perspective, how do I put you into a high value position that puts you in the driver's seat to negotiate a contract to improve your worth to improve your outcomes to patients and how do you help to start to build your own brand okay uh, going back to the hospital setting how can new grads get full-time employment <laughs> so the days of saying it's impossible i don't know where that came from it's actually it's not difficult to do that at all i think the starting point is what's difficult so i think you know and this was even before my time so when i graduated i would say i would actually guess that probably about 50 to 60% of my class went into private practice, the, the rest went into, into the hospital um, and community, where right now we know that at least 70% of new grads are going into private practice into some, some component. We even did uh, one of my student reps that was with private practice division, he actually surveyed his class at Queen's and it was over 95% of his class had some aspect of private practice and this was just the graduating class that just passed. Wow. Now, not everybody will stay there, but it's pretty significant. So what that also tells me, though, is that this is where the opportunity, I think, is if someone wants to go into the hospital, you need to get into there onto a temporary contract, casual opportunities, or part-time opportunities. So, you know, that means that you will have to work weekends. And some of my biggest pet peeves is, you know, for us in the private sector, we're always willing to work weekends. And we know that we have to work evenings because that's when we need to be accessible for patients. But what I find with the hospital is that weekends are not really well received. No one wants to work, you know, into the evenings where we're all accustomed to that in the private sector. But I think what you're going to see is where I believe a lot of improvement will happen in the hospital setting, just like in private practice or in the primary care world, is we know that physiotherapy has a huge impact on individuals' length of stay and how we flow patients through the hospital, our involvement in the emergency department. And I truly believe that you're going to see lots of opportunities opening up where you're going to see seven-day models of physios working weekends. So there's a casual position. You know, sometimes going into evenings if you're in a critical care unit in, in an academic teaching hospital. So if you have the willingness to be there and be able to balance multiple, so two part-time positions or something to that degree, that gives you a huge opportunity. What I think is missing and what gets missed in school is that if you're a casual employee, you have access to internal posting. So someone has a maternity leave, let's say, as just a very common thing that I've seen is that you have the opportunity to actually apply for that position. If you have no foot in the door already, you'll never know that that position exists because it typically stays within the hospital. So I guess to sort of make this long story short is don't hesitate to take a casual position and make yourself available, whether that's on a Saturday or Sunday, even while you're practicing in the private sector. Any little mount counts, and that's really where you want to be. And I actually have, were, was able to follow up with quite a few of the students that we had at the hospital this year. All but one rolled into a full-time temporary position at the hospital. How difficult is it to transition from hospital to private practice and vice versa? It's a good question. So I've never actually done that clinically. I've only done that transition from managing a network of 14 clinics into taking on a contract for a year of looking at the operations in a hospital, you know, what, what quality improved measures can we take? From a clinician, though, looking in there, 
I think the the one thing that would be consistent is your clinical reasoning capacity. 100% you could actually do the transition. However, what's different is looking at a caseload where in the hospital you have more referrals than you can see in any given day, so you need to truly prioritize. You know, you're working in an interprofessional model, and in some cases that collaboration is very strong. In other cases, that's very loose. Um, you guys have all done to some degree an interprofessional education week in school, and everybody is really on the same page. Unfortunately, that doesn't carry over into every public sector position, right? Um, whereas in private practice, you never really have more patients than you can see because your schedule is set and you will see all those patients in a given day. So I actually think going from, from the clinical context, I had a lot of my friends too when we graduated that started in the hospital. They were actually fearful to come into the private sector because they thought they were going to lose a lot of their skills, which they never did. There's always going to be obviously a piece where you probably feel a little bit rusty with, with some component of a, of a technical skill or your assessment capacity or your assessment skills. But it's only a matter of time. You have to actually put more trust into the knowledge that you have and the competence that you have as a therapist. I think the piece that's a little bit tougher that I think we overlook is finding someone to kind of coach you through the practice model of the hospital versus the private sector versus the community. I think the individuals that can actually transition back and forth are probably quite versatile to see where some of the improvements from our profession could happen in the system. So does it require... A little bit of extra support if you've been five years out and you want to change your practice setting i think so i think your ability and your your learning curve on that is a lot shorter without a doubt okay there seems to be a perception that private clinics invariably lead to a bigger income compared to hospitals i'm curious if that holds true in the long term five to ten years down the road with things like benefits and pension factored in yeah, that's interesting. So I would have actually said in the past that you would make more money in private practice. But now going through multiple employment contracts and, and looking at private, public, and then community, which actually kind of sits as a hybrid in there too, depends on what you need actually. So I think you may have a higher capacity or potential to earn more money per hour in the private sector, especially if you're on a fee split. Uh, we know that that's a huge possibility too as you go out west, as you move across the country, Alberta and BC, they typically see higher fee splits than if you go east. But you have to look at what you're working with as a total picture, right? So we know that most pay scales in the hospital are com where they actually all are transparent. You know exactly where you are on the scale. You know how many years of experience. You know where you're going to get to. So you you would know. Whereas if you're in the private clinic, depending on how many patients you see, how you decide to schedule your, your caseload. Do you have a, a hyper niche that you want to work with particularly so you actually maybe charge more per hour or per session? So you actually have control over how much you want to make at the end of the year. The difference though is if you're an independent contractor or you know, you're in private practice, you don't typically have a pension. Whereas when you look at the hospital, you have a pension through the hospital we are at and, and I believe it's across the province for sure is, is hoop, right? So it is by far one of the most stabilizing components of a hospital. So yes, you may make a little bit less, but every pay period you're actually paying into a very, a very strong pension, which is quite nice. You know, you have benefits, but I wouldn't say that that's the big difference because some private clinics and companies, especially some larger corporations, they will offer you benefits as well. So I think it's just a matter of, again, this is why it's so important to, not that you have to plan your entire career when you first graduate, but looking at it, what happens as you, as you want to move forward? You know, what is your plans to get married, have a family? You know, if you're in the hospital and you have a family, 
majority of hospitals will top up your maternity leave when you're doing that in the in the private sector. I had a good friend of mine, she opened a clinic and she I know she was breastfeeding her daughter in the back room of the clinic three months after she was born. And that's just what she had to do when she was a clinic owner. But at the same point, though, there was no you know, maternity leave top up. It was her ER and that was it. She was in private practice, so she wasn't getting a huge amount of, of support at that point financially. Whereas the hospital, I know, for example, our hospital, it's you get topped up for six months. So I think those aspects of things is you want to take not just the actual dollar value per hour, but you want to actually take in the whole compensation package and then make your decision that way. And let's move on to the job hunt. Maybe we'll just start with where should physios start when looking for a job? We'll be talking about like new grads. Mm-hmm. All right. So actually attend your job fair. That's a good start. I remember I never really took the job fair that seriously when I was a new grad. I was fortunate I had a placement that had actually offered me a position before I was I had completed. So I and I had made my decision. So I think each each of your placements, even I think before the job fair, I guess each of your placements is your first opportunity for a job, right? If you if you make a really good impression, especially in the public sector, that's probably your best reference to get into that particular hospital if that's an area of interest for you. But your job fair is for sure one of the first places to start. Um, getting a sense of what what it, what opportunities exist out there for you. The one piece though that I would say for you guys is that oftentimes some of the small clinic owners, they can't actually make and attend that that job fair. So you often see a lot of the hospitals will be there, a lot of the corporations will be there, maybe some individuals that are local will be there to the, your particular school. So one of the things though that I think is an opportunity is that we're actually helping clinic owners now think about other strategies to, to target their job ads. So looking at a targeted ad through Facebook groups and things like that. So I think you guys will see in the next, in the very, very near future, I know every school has a Facebook page, right, that you guys use as a, as a class and you tend to maintain it. And I would suggest too that you encourage people to put their postings there so you guys actually get access to them. Um, and they're sort of directed right towards you, which means it also reduces some strain because you know that they're actually looking for new grads. The other piece, though, is you guys could look at, um, you know, the provincial association will always have job postings, you know, depending on if you have interest in orthopedics, you could look at the orthopedic division website. So those are the, the, the benefits of you guys having a free membership to the association as students. And then as new grads, you actually, or when you're making that decision to embark as a new grad into an area of, of work, you have access to those opportunities. But I think one of the things that I'm sure this will lead into our next question, though, is before you even start your job hunt, you need to know what you're looking for. You need to know where you want to work. So private, public, community. You need to know what sort of support. And what, what I call it as well, though, is what are your deal makers and your deal breakers? And I think that's how you make use of going through job ads, knowing what you're most interested in and whether you want to pursue a particular job ad that you see. And how do you actually make the most use of a job fair? Um, and how do you then, from that perspective, how do you take away um, an opportunity to make a connection with a potential recruiter or the clinic owner? Um, but that's sort of where I would start. The other thing, most everyone will say, well, how how early is too early to start looking for a job? And I think you guys, there's nothing that says in your first year of practice you shouldn't start looking for a job, right? Because remember, your first placement is your first opportunity to make an impression to an employer. And we spoke about this a little bit with job 
ads, but you mm -hmm. recommend applying for jobs even if you don't have that required experience? Yep, 100%. A lot of people don't know what they don't know, right? So I always say that with myself as a physio, I don't know what I don't know. And for me, if I know that I actually am capable of, of, of delivering or filling a need and delivering service for that particular clinic, hospital, I would never shy away and I would never discourage you guys from shying away from that position. I actually remember back when I was a student at U of T, um, I remember someone coming in that said they were giving us sort of the lay of the land over the automotive industry and, you know, being on site as a physio and how, how exciting that would be. You work in a clinic, you work on the line with the employees and stuff. And, and I was, it was pretty, it was really interesting, right? And then at the end of that, the individual was like, but you need a few years of experience before you can do that. Um, and I remember that our professor at the time, and I was a little taken back by that because I was like, I'm actually pretty smart. Like I'm a physio, I got into physio school. I'm going through my placements. Why do I need to wait so long to treat these individuals? And I'm sure we can have a pissing contest over that with various you know, physios across the country. However, the one thing that I'll never forget is our professor at the time said, you guys don't need, you know, don't be afraid to do those opportunities. If you're interested in that type of world, you should take it. So same idea is that never sell yourself short. You have the competence, you have the skill set. You may have to actually seek some mentorship to help sort of make up for some of your experience that you may lack compared to another candidate. But I just need you to tell me how you're going to be successful. And if I can deliver on helping you along that way too, it would never shy away from me from hiring you. And... With physio contracts, what is typically negotiable in a contract? Hmm. Do you want the short answer or the long answer? <laughs> short answer is the entire thing is negotiable. It's an interesting piece, right? Because remember, you guys, just as much as you know, for myself as, an, as a clinic owner or as a clinic manager, that I'm going to interview you, you're interviewing me just the same. So you know, for me, I've been involved with hiring probably over 50, 60 physios in my career. And I actually expect you to interview me as well. And I think what becomes negotiable at times is sort of what you want to negotiate. So for me, I obviously have a need and I'm looking for the best candidate for that need. And then now it comes down to, well, what's important for you, right? So what I would do is I would actually, if this was an in-person sort of back and forth debate, we would have is I want to know from you what, what is it that you would like for me to offer you to keep you as a satisfied, engaged employee. Are there any other questions that you feel new grads should ask in an interview? The one thing I would say when it comes to what can you negotiate is is understanding, first of all, what's what's important to you as a physio, right? So is it, um, if you were to rate the top five things that are important to you, is it is it the, the actual compensation? Is it the continuing education? Is it the mentorship? Is it benefits? Is it, you know, the caseload that you'll have to see? And then what are the things that you don't want to work with or would be the deal breakers for you? you know, the compensation's too low, it's too far away, there's no mentorship. So you can kind of take all those, you know, most common components of what, a, of what a physio would like to see and you can actually make them positive or negative and that becomes your deal maker, your deal breaker. I believe though, what I would expect you guys to learn how to do is, before we even start talking about how do you, how do you bring up or broach the compensation question is, you actually need to know how you're going to be evaluated, right? So you want to know from that clinic owner, the first question that I would want to know is how do you know if your employee is being successful, you know, or what do you view as a successful employee? I really think that if you don't actually come prepared with questions to that uh, interview, that is that sort of resonates with that clinic owner, you will forget who you are. And the reason I say that is because as a new grad, 
on paper, you all look very similar, right, to some degree. But when it comes to why would I choose yourself over a, a colleague of yours, it's just going to be who, who do I remember when I leave that interview with. And how I remember people is by them offering me engaged questions that actually talk to me about performance, success, engagement. And you can do all those things in a very, very diplomatic way that actually lead into the salary question, right? And that's sort of the, you know, the elephant in the room at every interview. And depending on recruiters or therapists or owners you talk to, some people say, yes, you should, you should bring it up at, at the time of your interview. And others will say, don't. So what I've done over the years is I've tried to teach all my students is to say, kind of get to that point, right? So how we get there is to say, you know, how do you evaluate performance? How do you know if a physio is doing well? What, what metrics do you look at? So I know as a physio whether I'm doing a good job. And I think the one piece that I really want you guys to take away even from this session is when you're a student in school and you're on placement, you really don't know how you're doing until you do your midterm or you do your final eval. And really, then you get, at the end of it, we tell you, oh, these are areas that you should work on. My question is, why don't we work on those areas over the six weeks or five weeks of your internship? So same idea as what you want to do is you, you would want to know early on, are you a top performer in that clinic or are you a bottom performer in that clinic? And if you have no idea, then how do you, how do you actually continue to be a really a strong employee for me as a clinic owner? Or how do you know if you can continue to build yourself as an independent practitioner or as a contractor and continue to build your caseload and your value to patients in a particular community. So those types of questions there typically lead into a question or a discussion around salary. You know, how do you, do you, do you have incentives if, if I hit certain milestones? Do you offer continuing education for areas where I need to improve? Do you offer continuing education as a reward if we're doing really well? So those are all things that you can get to, and eventually that will lead into that conversation. And usually the clinic owner will sneak into that and tell you how much money you're going to make. What starting salary should a new grad expect? Depends where you want to work. So if you're going to the hospital, you will actually know already how much you're going to make before you even get there. So that's sort of a really easy, I suppose, question to ask or answer. The... From a private practice perspective, though, if you actually go and you look across the country, kind of look on Indeed, on an hourly basis, it's around 37 bucks is sort of what they would say is the average physio salary. So what I often look at for new grads, there's two ways to look at it. I usually don't tell my students to take anything less than 35 to start. What a lot of people have to consider is that you guys will start working most likely before the national exam. So as a resident, are you getting the same hourly rate as until you complete your exam, does it go up once you are successfully passed? What happens if you're not successful is always a concern for individuals. But typically, you usually see a little bit less of an hourly rate because you should be getting more support in a residency period. And then your, your rate should go up because you will actually require less support. The independent contractor piece shouldn't really have an implication because, again, it just comes down to are you getting paid on a percentage or, or an hourly rate? The one thing, though, that I would say what we've noticed across the country, the average around as a percentage right now is about 43% to the physio, and obviously the remainder goes to the clinic owner. I've seen new grads be offered low 30s to 50%. 50% for me is, is high, but it depends also where you're working. If you're in a rural area, you would expect to see more of a, of a percentage or an hourly rate than if you're working downtown Toronto. 
But then again, your fees in Toronto may be higher to the to a client or a patient, so therefore you actually would see potentially a higher rate. So I think what's important though is for you guys to have an idea of what is sort of the standard, and depending on which province you're in, that association, like through CPA, should be able to actually give you some guidance of what that looks like. If you're unsure though, we also have it from a private practice perspective. So nationally, we have a really good idea from a survey we've done not too long ago that has an idea of provincially what you would expect to see. And then again, it comes to you guys, what you have to do is what's more important to you? Would you rather have more continuing education allowance and sort of have less hourly value? Do you want to have extended health benefits? And then what happens when you actually bring that all together? Because again, it's the total compensation package. How often should you renegotiate your contract? That's an interesting question, actually. So some people, if you look at hospital-wise, at times there's usually an annual increase, right? So you have your cost of living that will happen, or it's already set on your on your grid that it would say, okay, if you have this many years of experience, you would rake this much money, right? And obviously it's all hourly. For private clinics, it doesn't necessarily work to that same degree. So every year you don't necessarily get a raise. I think inevitably it works out that way. But what I would do is I would actually put it to your performance appraisal. I would expect a new grad to minimum have a performance review at six months and a year. My preference is quarterly because you need to know where you're at and how you're doing. So when I was a new grad, I was actually quite successful at building my practice. I had some great mentorship that helped me got there, but I also didn't know until much later in my career um, what I was getting paid and what the clinic was bringing in. So what we want to see now is you know, not to negotiate at times to say, well, you know, my friends make X, so I should make this much money too, is if that's sort of where your clinic owner sits, the interesting thing is, okay, well, I want to start to build some of those milestones. And, and if I know how you're going to evaluate my performance, I'd like to actually sit down at a certain period of time and we could talk about, is that worthy of an increase? Is that something where we could actually, could I get a bonus off of that? Or sometimes that may not always be the component of dollars that's negotiable. Maybe it's continuing education that's negotiable. Maybe it's an incentive that occurs or a bonus that happens that's legit that sort of supports that I've made a milestone and this is not what I want to get to. So I maybe I guess to give you again the short answer, it typically would be after your annual review, but don't don't leave it where it's a very passive opportunity. I've done that way too long where it's like, oh, you're, you're, you've done a great job. Here, we'll give you an extra buck. Uh, I don't do that anymore and I certainly wouldn't coach you. So I've even worked with somebody recently where I've actually known her productivity from mentoring her for two years and we actually increased her by $5,000 when she actually moved on to a new position because that's what she was worth. And it was very, very easy to prove that process um, just by looking at very simple metrics and how much value she would bring and she was only two years out of school. So there's that experience piece that if you know how you can continue to improve yourself, you're, you're much more valuable than just sort of that annual increase per year. Uh, are there any ethical issues or business-related red flags that new grads should be aware of when job hunting or starting out at a new clinic? Mm-hmm. So I'll probably have a few pet peeves, but I think the one thing is, is if you're not offered an observational shift, that's my first red flag, right? You need to make sure that you are comfortable in that environment. You kind of have an idea who your mentor is. So for many years, like when I was actually, and when I still recruit, you meet me but I don't actually work in many of those clinics. So I'll obviously manage them, but you don't see me on a regular basis and I'm not gonna necessarily mentor you directly throughout that caseload. So what you wanna know is you wanna see who's actually gonna mentor you. So if I say you're going to 
Clinic X in Toronto, you actually want to meet Physio X in Toronto. And if that's the person you're going to work with, you need to make sure that that's actually a very good fit for you. You may like me, you may not like me, depending on what that looks like, but it's all about who you're going to work with and what does that team look like, right from the clinic administrator all the way down to, you know, potentially the massage therapist that you work with. Just so you guys know, is one of the first things that I do is I don't even ask the physio for their opinion at that observational shift, I ask the administrator. I want to know what their first impression of you is like. Were you nice? Were you rude? Um, and it's a little bit what they do in some of the big Fortune 500 companies. They actually judge at times an interview off of how you treated a cab driver to get to the to get to the interview, and that's actually made a decision for you know a CEO to determine who's their next big VP. So that's sort of how I look at it. So for you though, that's the, you're also a chance to interview that clinic and that team. And what are do people you know they're eating at the desk and you're like I'm not working here, right? Because remember that's sometimes the first face of you of you in the clinic. That would be my first red flag. If they're not easy to give you information, so if they can't tell you how your billing numbers used, they're very vague with mentorship. And I think this is one of the ones that I struggle with because if I said to you, I'm going to give you X number of dollars for continuing education, it's written down. You can say, well, you didn't give me that yet. Okay, and you can go take a course. You submit the receipt. We reimburse you for it. But the mentorship is the one that's very difficult because everybody knows that young students and new grads want mentorship. And I can just write it down on a piece of paper. So probably about seven years ago, is I actually developed a mentorship program for PT Health, and that evolved over many, many years. And the reason being is that we were able to tell people is that this is your program, but what actually happened on paper was, or in practicality, was very different. And what I want you guys to actually really inquire about is what does that actually look like and understanding it much better. Because if you don't, I'll be able to get you to sign on the dog line because you're going to get a program. And you're going to be super excited, but what does that even look like? Is it formal? Is it actually is it an informal process? Who do you have access to if you're stuck on cases? Do you have time off and protected time off that's paid, unpaid to work with physios? If there's more than one site, do you get to work at the other sites? Do you have to seek it externally, but they cover that, that sort of thing? And I think those are some of the big questions that are, that are unknown. The other piece too, though, is that we also know from a mentorship perspective is that at times we set some people up for failure. We were so, it was such a formalized process that when the mentorship was taken away, the, the, that particular younger physio felt that they no longer had support and they weren't actually, they had almost reduced some of their confidence. So we've actually over the years really tried to tease out that there's a formal and informal process that has to happen. But I really need you guys to tease that out because if you don't get a really good answer, then the, the, the mentorship program probably doesn't exist to what we're stating it does. And those are really my two red flags. Things that you have to obviously be concerned about in a contract is uh, if there's a non-competition clause and what does that mean to you? So non-comp typically means you can't work within a geographical area. Does it hold up in court? Not necessarily, but it can create a little bit of an issue. And the other one is obviously a non-solicitation. So, and it's not, they're not really huge red flags. But it's just something you want to be aware of because if it's just where a clinic, it's not working out for you and you want to move on, but you want to stay within a, you know, a, a small town, especially is, is, are you able to still work somewhere else in that city or that in that small town? Typically it's safe. The only time it really becomes an issue is if you want to open a clinic across the street, that's usually when you get into trouble. But from a red flag perspective, most of the time you'll be able to tease out those red flags when you first step through those doors. And moving on to clinic ownership, mm -hmm. how long should you practice before opening your own clinic? 
depends if you want to open your own clinic or not. So probably two of the most successful clinic owners I know started their practice the day they left school. They knew they were always going to open their own clinic. They actually rented a small room. That was their, that was their clinic. That went from, you know, a 300 square foot little room to a 3000 square foot facility to a 10,000 square foot facility to selling six clinics to then opening eight again. So I don't, I think it's more, when is the right sort of time for you from a, from a fit perspective? I think you guys have the competence right away to do it. If you have that desire, it just kind of kicks that entrepreneurial side of you into high gear faster. Um, there's obviously more risk when you do that. And it requires, you know, probably a bit more hustle to get things going at first, right? Versus going into a situation where you know you have guaranteed referrals. So that's sort of actually how we we look at hiring people, depending on those types of environments. But I don't think it's something where you have to wait to the fifth year to do it. I think you want to, it might take you a little bit to plan it and actually have your business case done. You need to make sure you have, you know, the funding sources approved, but you want to tease out too. Do you want to do it on your own? Do you want to have partners? If you want to have partners, do you trust your partners right away? Like what, what things can you put into place? You're in a very stable situation, but I, I would never discourage somebody from doing it. I think there is a little bit of, of concern though about doing it the way that it's always been done. A lot of people will tell you guys, I believe that you shouldn't open a clinic anymore because it's just not possible. There's too many clinics out there. And I totally disagree with that. I think if you try to do it the same way everybody did 10, 15 years ago, that could be a bit risky. But I think it's there's so much opportunity. There's patients that don't seek enough therapy as it is. And if you look at the current stats that we know that even back pain alone, only 7% of patients actually go to physio with back pain or referred for physio. So 93% of people have back pain that go to their GP don't even come. And then what about the hundred percent, you know, the, the next hundred patients that don't even go to their GP and don't have a GP. So I actually think there's more than enough patients, but it's a little bit differently now about, well, how do you, how do you actually attract some of those patients? You know, how, what's your lead generation? How does your marketing work? So there's lots of opportunities. The question is, is when is the least risky for you to do that? And it just depends on your financial situation when you want to have a family. So it's totally doable. Um, I think one of the other pieces too for a younger physio to go into clinic ownership um, and start your own practice is to actually have a mentor as well. And that mentor could be someone that you work with directly. It could be within industry. Sometimes it's powerful to have an outside of industry mentor as well, especially when it comes to some of the financial components. But I think you even have the opportunity for it to be sort of a network piece. So one of the things that we've also done too from private practice division is we have created a, a network, if you will, or kind of an online community for clinic owners to actually share resources, to share challenges. And that even from a sort of a coaching perspective or a support perspective has been quite successful. So that would be the other key sort of piece that I would have is don't be afraid to reach out to somebody else who's been successful because you're now competing against each other because you both own clinics. Remember that there's always more patients that we actually have the capacity to see. So there's actually a lot of opportunity for you guys to seek that opportunity to be successful and don't hesitate to actually do something just because you're a little bit risk adverse to it or, or someone else told you that you can't do it. You actually won't know if you can't do it unless you really you know, make that business blueprint and actually figure out if that is actually the most appropriate time for you to, to kind of embark upon that opportunity. You guys have more entrepreneurial uh, capacity than we actually think about because we don't often think that way in school. Um, so just like, you know, if you're going clinical and you want to think about your continuing education blueprint, if you're interested in that, those next phases, if it's 
clinical and you want to stay clinical, you can always become a specialist, right? If you're thinking about, if you do like the clinic management and clinic ownership side of things, you have that capacity to build a blueprint to get you there. And last question. A lot of new grads are coming out of school with high loans and may not see the value of paying for professional memberships on top of the expense of uh, mm -hmm. licensing fees. So what are some benefits of being a CPA member? All right. So I'm biased because obviously I'm a CPA member <laughs> and chair of the private practice division. But I think the one piece that I would say is that a lot of a lot of the opportunities that I've actually had or have come to me have actually been through all networking and that involvement I've had at those association levels for sure. So, you know, looking at new opportunities to meet individuals in the public sector where I've never been in the public sector actually sort of got me into a situation where someone said, you know, having you step outside the private sector for a year to actually think of a business context in a new area and, you know, yeah, you can mentor some physios in the private sector, but, you know, can you mentor a physio in the public sector? I had never done it. So these were just opportunities that I feel have come that way. If you go down to just the, you know, the basics of what is the uh, professional membership offer you? you? You have the opportunity for your insurance, your continuing education, access to knowledge translation through the divisions. But I think people look at it too, sort of like, oh, I, I'm going to get a bunch of emails that will come through. I think the one piece is, is that when you look at the amount of experts that I truly believe exist in Canada, a lot of them will funnel through the divisions. And obviously being part of CPA gets you access to those divisions. And these are where there's the untapped potential, I think, for a lot of new grads is, well, what does that mean for me? How do I get involved? And there's opportunities out there for you guys from, a, from even a job perspective that are often made through connections when you actually have an affiliation with the association. And there's lots of other value-added components too. So, you know, we have access to journal articles. You'll, you know, depending, I know BC, they have access to a librarian, which would actually help you find uh, research and evidence base to improve some of your clinical outcomes. So there's just a lot of opportunities to do that. But I would say my biggest takeaway outside of the knowledge translation and obviously the, the insurance is the fact that my network became so much stronger and larger, actually, because of my involvement at the association level. Where can people find out more about you? For more about me, so the best way, obviously, is you can follow me through my social media channels, so on other Instagram, Facebook, that sort of thing. Um, obviously, as Chair of Private Practice Division, we'll continuously be putting out more and more resources to support our members. And, and one of the things that we're going to do this year, and I really hope that we can actually achieve our goal, what we've really analyzed over the last five years of me being the chair is that we don't really do a great job of, of catering to students and actually retaining them as members into their first year of practice. So we're really working this year diligently to, to improve our outreach, to deliver value to a student, whether they're in first year, second year, or then somebody first entering into practice. And then one of the other things that, like I, we mentioned earlier, that I, that I will build for this, this coming year in 2018 is what I'm calling mentorship boot camp. So an opportunity for individuals who really want to improve their practice management and their, and their caseload management to really be successful. And, and it's not going to only be for the private practice, but I'm sure it'll have that, that ability to cater a bit more to private practitioners. But even in the public sector is, is how do you get that additional mentorship and, and what is the value of that to really improve the, the opportunities that I truly believe that most physios haven't quite maybe teased out where their full potential is. And the other piece of what boot camp will, will be about is, is actually teaching you how to see where your true value is and what your true worth is to an organization, to a clinic, like to a clinic owner. 
because again, I, I've, when I go through my story is a matter of, I knew that I actually had a high worth to a lot of people, but I didn't know how to ask for that true worth. I want lots of the students and the new grads that I have the ability to work with currently, I can, I can kind of instill that power into them. But the ones that I don't see across the country, I want to ensure that if you're able to deliver a high value, we know that it's already going to be given to a patient, but you're going to deliver a high value to an owner or to a manager. And I want to make sure that you guys learn the, learn the skills and have the capacity to ask for more. So you'll be able to find me definitely through there, through that program that we're developing, which will launch in 22. Okay. Thank you. Mm-hmm. No problem. Thank you for listening to Functional First Podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a rating on the iTunes store. And for more great business content for rehab professionals, visit cpaprivatepractice.ca.